Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman podcast brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle, say, 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine. But, you know, they've, they've sold 5,000, they're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine. I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100. Uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, lot 506 or lot 622. Simple number on it, and you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had the, the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock. All these, these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes. That's his name. He, the guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy and he's doing amazing stuff. chwine.com slash T-H-O-M. Or text the word wine, W-I-N-E. Text the word wine to 511-511 and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three bottle order. So text wine to 511-511. Cameron Hughes wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is Adam Tooze. He's a professor of history at Columbia University with a focus on economics and politics, the director of the European Institute, the author of several books, and his most recent, Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Challenged the World. I bought this book a, a couple of months ago and read much of it, and it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, Adam Tooze, T-O-O-Z-E dot com is his website. You can tweet him at Adam underscore Tooze. Uh, Adam, welcome to the program. Professor Tooze, welcome to the program. 
Thank you for having me on. Thank you for joining us. I, I found your book fascinating. I, the last chapter in particular, you talked about the concerns and issues around 1914. And I'm assuming probably you were writing that around 2014, but, but maybe not. And, and how we're in some ways seeing history repeat itself, at least with regard to your concerns and, and those of many economists. Can you speak to that? Yes. You know, 1914 is an event that we've been arguing about for a century seems to me to encapsulate many of the problems of the modern world, which are strikingly similar in some ways to what happened in 2008. And it's this weird way in which, on the one hand, the modern world generates enormous power structures, which seem to be beyond the influence of any one individual, any one person beyond democratic control as well. And then on the other hand, and precisely at the same time, they also create power structures which do enable individuals, largely men, generally of a particular class, to organize themselves and to exercise power in a very concerted way. And it's that weird kind of duality that I think the financial crisis of 2008 and the events leading up to the outbreak of World War I have in common. I thought your characterization detailed day by day, blow by blow, of the financial crisis of 2008 was brilliant. I'm curious your thoughts now, having written the book and having published it and all, and time has passed, to what extent do you think that we actually have resolved the issues that provoke? I refer to it as the Great Republican Crash of 2007, 2008. If you want to take the partisanship out of it, fine. To what extent are we not out of the woods with regard to that crash? To what extent are we still in that crash even? I mean, I think we're out of the crash, but I mean, to use another analogy, we're we, we, we haven't fundamentally changed the vehicle. We've, we've added seatbelts, we've added a guidance system, we've got better brakes on the system maybe. But the vehicle itself is the same rickety old high-speed death trap that it always has been, and it's most likely to generate crises in future as well. Whether they'll take the precise form that they did in 2008, I think, is an open question. We do have slightly more security devices on the system, and we also have a certain amount of experience with dealing with it when it goes off the road. But it isn't in any fundamental way safer than it was before the crisis. The issues that provoked the last crisis, the collateralization of mortgages, mm -hmm. we're seeing this repeated now. Subprime mortgages are again hot. Subprime auto loans are hot. We've got over a trillion and a half dollars in the student loan market. Great piece in the Washington Post today about how Betsy DeVos could be provoking the next international financial crisis by winding back the regulation of the for-profit educational institutions and bringing back one of the most corrupt agencies that certifies uh, educational institutions in a way that makes them eligible for federal funds. What are the things that you see that might provoke a crisis? What are the things that we should be looking for, uh, you know, with your historian and economist's eyes? Yeah. I mean, I think you're looking for three things, and I don't quite see them coming together yet, not in the United States. You're looking for an asset class, which is overpriced, a bubble-type asset, which will suddenly lose value. So student loans might fit that bill or high-yield bonds in the corporate sector. But then you're also looking for those to be part of the balance sheets of vulnerable financial institutions. And they really need to be massively over-leveraged and short-term funded. And it was the fact that all those three things came together in 2008 that produced this epic banking meltdown on both sides of the Atlantic. Right now, I think we've got pieces of that story, but it's only really in China that you really see all three of them coming together. And the authorities there are really working very hard to defuse what everyone I can think can see as a time bomb. In the US, we have elements of the story but not really the three bundled together, you know, where you've got Citigroup, a $2 trillion bank with a huge amount of short-term funding holding, 
you know, uh, a couple of hundred billion dollars worth of exposure to very bad mortgages. We don't quite have that that combination yet in the current situation. We've certainly got the makings of a bad case of the flu in the United States economy. I'm not sure that we've got the makings of a heart attack. Is it is it possible that that asset class could be stocks? I mean, stocks are, are more overvalued now than they were in 2008. Yeah, but, but they're not held. Um, they're not held on the balance sheets of banks in the way that the fixed income uh, securities were before I see. 2008. So that's, I think, really the danger sign. When those three comes three things come together, then all right, all the lights are blinking red, and people should really, really uh, pay attention. What's the difference between the way that the United States has responded to this and other countries around the world? Uh, you mentioned China. Um, uh, what countries are doing a good job of, uh, you know, battening down the hatches of, of solving the problems uh, the, the, that 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 provoke these kind of crises, and what countries are doing the worst jobs? And what can we learn from both? Yeah, I mean, I see I did uh, the U.S. kind of a middle in grade, to be honest. I mean, they moved quite quickly to recapitalize the American banks. Now, Mm. that's not, you know, doing taxpayers any favors. In the end, they did make a decent return on the investment, but that's really in the interest of bank shareholders. Banks should have been properly capitalized in the first place. But getting them to the place where they are well capitalized is a step in the direction of stability. I mean, the people who really lagged behind were the Europeans, uh, where you've still got banks like Deutsche Bank, systemically important financial institutions, currently rated the most dangerous bank in the world. The, the Chinese authorities characteristically seem to just quite uninhibitedly be going about squashing the shadow banking sector right now because they just think it's dangerous. How far they're succeeding at that, we don't really know. Beijing was obviously rather opaque. But they, they at least are doing the kind of preemptive action that no one in the West was doing before 2007-8. So I'd give the U.S. a kind of middling score um, above the Europeans. Um, but historically speaking, Beijing is moving more quickly than any of us in the West did uh, before 08. Howe and Strauss uh, wrote a book years ago, uh, back in the, in the late 90s, uh, titled The Fourth Turning. And they pointed out that roughly every 80 years... Uh, leveraging Arnold Toynbee's great quote mm-hmm. that when the when the last man who remembers the horrors of the last great war dies and that memory is lost to society, the horrors of that war, the next great war becomes inevitable. And and it, mm-hmm. what they pointed out is that roughly every 80 years we have a massive financial crisis followed by uh, a great war in 1929, uh, followed by World War II, uh, the Great Crash of 1856, followed by the Civil War, the Great Crash of 1770, followed by the American Revolution. They literally take this back to the to the, fifth, the 16th century. And uh, I'm wondering if, if you see any cycles of history in this. I mean, you were talking about 1914. 1914, of course, was followed by World War One. And and mm-hmm. there are many people out there, uh, foreign policy experts, Zbigniew Brzezinski, before he died, was talking about mm-hmm. this a lot, uh, who are pointing out that the interlocking uh, relationships that many, many of the countries around the world have, mutual defense relationships, are structurally very similar to what we had in 1914 in, in many regards. Mm-hmm. And, and that, uh, you know, a small incident like the, the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand could trip something off or something economic could trick, trick, trip, trip off a, a, a war-type mm-hmm. event. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think historians generally come in, well, they come in different flavors. Some are more of the cyclical repetition-type flavor. Personally, I'm more of a hockey stick kind of guy. In other words, I think, Modern history departs in really fundamental ways, and by modern I really mean 
20th century and indeed even I think you might say late 20th century history departs in quite fundamental ways from the past. That's not necessarily an optimistic view. You take, say, the environmental question, you know, nothing in human history prepares us for what's coming our way in the next 50 years in terms of human-induced climate change. I tend to think that global capitalism is operating with a similar dynamic. And if you add atomic weapons into the story, then I think you similarly could claim there's a discontinuity. I mean, if we have another war like World War II, with all likelihood will, you know, extinguish human life on the planet. So it won't be another one of the 80-year crises. The sort of place where you might see that kind of tension building up uh, it would seem to be most obviously East Asia. That's where there's a real great power confrontation. And the Trump administration seems bent, and not just the Trump administration, but the American security apparatus behind Trump, which probably would have backed up Hillary Clinton as president as well, uh, seems bent on uh, escalating tension with China, a regime which is quite manifestly committed to nationalism as an organizing ideology to hold the mass base of the Chinese regime together. That, I think, is a very difficult and dangerous situation. We already saw in 2014, under the Obama administration, how tense things got between Japan and China. I think that's a really worrying uh, scenario. Whether or not you know, it ever gets to the point of an actual military confrontation, isn't it? You know, that's too hard to predict or foretell. But I think if you're looking for that kind of scenario, that's where you would look. Fascinating stuff. Adam Tooze, professor of history at Columbia University. His new book, Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World. Adam Tooze, T-O-O-Z-E dot com, the website. You can tweet him at Adam underscore Tooze. Uh, professor Tooze, thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you for having me on. It's been great talking with you. It's, a, and it's an extraordinary and fascinating book and well worth the read. I've been using the Muse EEG neurofeedback headband. I'm not sure that's exactly what they call it, but the website is choosemuse.com. It's a little headband you put on, um, just sets over your ears, sort of like a pair of glasses, only it goes across the forehead. And it actually reads your brain waves, your EEG, and feeds it back to you through a free app on your, on your smartphone into your earphones, into your, into your ears, as the sounds of weather. And as your brain gets more agitated, the weather gets louder. And as your brain gets calmer and more peaceful and more meditative, the weather gets softer and the waves get softer. And you start hearing little birds when you're having really cool brainwave activity that's associated with the way that good meditators do it. It's a meditation instruction tool. And meditation is such an incredible thing. It, it you know, helps concentration, focus, lowers blood pressure. I've been using this for about four or five months now. And I have noticed in my daily writing, because I've, I've got a 10-book contract right now, and I'm writing so much every single day. I used, to, I used to sit down to write and say, okay, I'm going to write for an hour. And half of that hour was spent with distractions. I'd think of this and think of that. And, oh, I need to check my email. Oh, i got to do that. And, and I would constantly distract myself and then eventually come back to it. Since I've started using the Muse, now when these distractions pop up, just like they do in my meditation, I've learned how to, just like in my meditation, say, oh, that's a distraction. I'll let go of that. I'll come back to that later. I'm going to get back to writing. And now, instead of getting 30 minutes worth of work done in an hour of sitting and writing, I'm getting 50 or 60 minutes of work done in an hour of sitting and writing. It's really extraordinary. The, you can learn all about it at choosemuse, M-U-S-E, choosemuse.com. 
And if you order using the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get $30 off. So check it out. It's great. Choosemuse.com. And on the line with us is Congressman Mark Pocan here on the Tom Hartman program. Congressman Pocan, welcome back to the program. Hey, thanks, Tom. Very glad to be here. And I should add, people can find your website at pocan.house.gov, and they can tweet you at Rep. Mark Pocan. We had quite an electoral upset in Florida last night. What are your thoughts on this? And Ron DeSantis, uh, the Republican, the Trump-endorsed Republican, has already gone on Fox News. And speaking of the African-American fellow, Mr. Gillum, who won the election, is saying that Florida shouldn't monkey up the state by electing this man. Curious your thoughts on all of this. Yeah, I, you know, first of all, it was a very big victory. I mean, Andrew Gillum, I, I met him about a year ago, and, you know, I got to tell you, I, I, you know, I hate when people do the Obama-esque comparisons, but I'm going to do one of those. I mean, he's a, a really smart, articulate local mayor, someone who, you know, has a lots and lots of potential, and I think uh, he's going to be a great candidate uh, for governor down there. But as you mentioned with Ron DeSantis, who's, you know, one of my colleagues in Congress, already race baiting. I, I saw a commercial that was an amazing commercial he ran during his primary, Ron DeSantis, where uh, he's got his kid and his wife on the commercial, and he's you know building a wall with his child, reading out of uh, you know Trump's book, saying you're fired. All this ridiculous, over the top. You know, could you be any more of a you know crazy blind fan of the president? And uh, you know that's what he's doing now, right? The president race baits, might as well race bait. And so it's going to be an ugly race. The good news is, I mean, again, Andrew Gillum, extremely um, strong candidate, uh, surprised everyone in a primary and, you know, ran on things like $15 minimum wage, Medicare for all. And as we saw last week, writers, uh, you know, 70% of the people around the country support Medicare for all. So he's actually talking about what people are talking about. DeSantis will be parroting whatever the president tweets, and uh, it's going to be a stark contrast, but let's hope that the voters in Florida will get out and vote and vote for their futures. Yeah, a great time for African-American candidates, for women candidates, people who have traditionally been locked out of the American political experience. Yeah. I I don't know if you caught this. I just wanted to share this with you. I thought it was fascinating. Um, uh, This is in today's Washington Post. Vladimir Putin went on TV last night on national television and walked back a proposal he's got. They, They have a Social Security program in Russia, just like we do here, or very much like ours. And in Russia, you can retire if you're male at the age of 60 and if you're female at the age of 55 with full benefits. And Putin wanted to raise that to 65 for men and 63 for women. And there was such a blowback across Russia to him doing this that he went on TV and backed down. Um, Social Security, regardless of your country, regardless of your culture, regardless of your political system, Social Security is a big deal. Absolutely. In fact, just talking about Florida elections, I hope this is something they talk about. You know, Ron DeSantis and the House Republicans have been, you know, wanting to mess around with uh, Social Security and Medicare. And, well, they want to raise the retirement age to 70, don't they? Isn't that the new Republican thinking? Yeah, I think uh, Duncan Hunter uh, had that as a proposal. Uh, you've seen them want to privatize the programs. You've seen them try to voucherize Medicare, all these things that would you know, affect something that we've all paid into uh, all our lives, and now they want to change the benefits and the rules. And, you know, I would argue the problems with Social Security are, are just the opposite. You know, if you're a senior, 
uh, and you get uh, the CPI uh, index increase is what people get, the consumer price uh, index increase, uh, you know, you don't spend money on gasoline. Um, you know, a lot of seniors aren't driving, but they do spend 25% of their income on medicine. You know, we should be actually having an inflation index that matches that. And there is an index called the CPI-E that would do just that. Uh, so, you know, they're on the complete wrong side of this debate. And, you know, I think that's something that uh, should be a big issue uh, going into fall is who's going to try to, you know, take that away or, or privatize it or, or risk the funds that you've put in your entire life to take care of that when you retire. And, uh, you know, it's not raising the age, it's not cutting the benefits, it's not uh, changing the program. It's making sure that, you know, we lift that cap uh, so uh, more money gets put into it. But more importantly, let's look at increasing uh, that that increase so that it actually addresses what seniors spend their money on. Yeah, I, I don't know if any progressive politicians want to go this way. It was this was uh, in one of the chapters in my book, Rebooting the American Dream, that uh, that Bernie endorsed. Although I don't know if he endorsed this specific suggestion. It's been a long time since we've talked about that topic. But I got together with a couple of economists and and asked the question, what would happen if we lowered the Social Security and Medicare eligibility age in the United States from 65? And of course, now it's going to be 67 uh, as Reagan's reforms kick in. I lowered it down to 60, which is what it is in Russia right now. Uh, what if we did that? And it looked like the result would be that it would open up about half of people in that five-year cohort, 60 to 65, about half of them would probably take early retirement. And, and what that would do is it would open up millions of jobs for young people who are just coming into the job market, good jobs, you know, the kind of, the kind of jobs that people have held for a long time, number one. And number two, though, it would raise the pay on those jobs and thus increase the amount of money going into Social Security. It would essentially pay for itself. Um, has, has there been any discussion about this in progressive circles? No, I think, you know, the most of the debates going around two, you know, levels. One, people are living longer, so what does that mean, right, and how that affects the fund. But then, you know, I think I think of things because, you know, I come from, uh, you know, I'm an almost 30-year member of the Painters and Allied Trades uh, Union. Uh, you know, a lot of folks who uh, work physically, uh, you know, at some point they can't continue to do that job in the same way. And, you know, as they raise the age uh, for retirement, they're making it harder and harder for them to be able to, to do that. So, um, you know, there's a lot of variables that should be put out there if we're going to talk about this. And, you know, um, I, what I'm afraid of is everything that Paul Ryan and the Republicans have put forward so far has been about, you know, enriching Wall Street and giving them all that money because it's a big chunk of money. And that puts everyone else at risk. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, let's pick up some phone calls. Sure. Mike in Tampa, Florida. Um, I voted for Andrew Gillum. I saw that Fox News earlier with uh, Ron DeSantis. Uh, since they're already going to call us socialists, and Andrew Gillum's really just a progressive, shouldn't we just stick with, uh, shouldn't we just stick for what we want, like Medicare for all and $15 minimum wage and just make no apologies for it? Yeah, I mean, he has been. You know, I, I really find he's a fascinating candidate because he's so good. When I met him, I was like, wow, this is a guy that hasn't really been on the national stage and really articulate, very smart, and, you know, taking on progressive issues, taking them right to the people. So DeSantis is going to do what they can. They love to say socialist. You know, they're trying desperately to make you not look at what's actually happening with the culture of corruption in Washington. Let's face it, Ron DeSantis, uh, you know, uh, constantly hugging the president uh, is about as close as you can get to that corruption as possible. You've got a choice. Do you want to go down that path? Or do you want to have someone who's going to offer something aspirationally? And I think, you know, in Florida, uh, thanks for your vote. And hopefully you'll, you'll all make that right decision as that governor's race comes up. 
Yeah, it's going to be a uh, it's going to be a very interesting election. That and and the senatorial election in Florida too, where we've got you know Rick Scott with uh, Charlene Dill's blood on his hands, one of the people who died from the lack of the expansion of Medicaid in Florida. And uh, well, we'll see where it goes. Congressman Mark Pocan with us, taking your calls. We'll be right back with more of your calls for the congressman. And uh, JP in Bozeman, Montana, you are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Thanks for listening to SiriusXM. Thanks, Tom. Hey, thank you, uh, Congressman Pocan. Uh, I was just thinking that with this Chris Kobach debacle and people being expunged from the voter rolls, is it possible to create legislation that would ensure that every veteran and every active service member has their vote counted and is not knocked off the rolls? Because I'm thinking with all the people that they expunged, there has to be a, at least 5% of those people being expunged are veterans or service members. And that would keep people from... Uh, I would think that Republicans would have a hard time voting against that legislation. Yeah, JP, the problem is they would never put it on the floor, which is our, our problem we have right now, which is why um, many of us are arguing to change the faces of the people in Congress so that if we're in the majority, um, we can do a lot uh, around this. And a lot will be done. The Democrats uh, have already put forward a, a proposal to deal with a lot of the election-related issues to make sure we have better security uh, in our elections, and we would likely do that in the very first quarter of next year. So um, you're right. Uh, you know, veterans would be a way to approach it with Republicans, but the problem is Paul Ryan will never put it up for a vote, uh, which has been the dysfunction we've had really since 2010. But Paul Ryan uh, has taken it to a, a new class of dysfunction. Um, Democrats uh, want to do a bunch of these reforms and make sure that every person has that ability to vote. And uh, I think you'll see a lot of that happen should. Uh, the majority change. Margie in Wisconsin Rapids, you are on the air with Congressman Mark Pocan. Congressman Pocan, right now the Florida waters are dying, the West is burning, and Wisconsin is drowning. Two-part question. One, how do we address climate change, which is definitely feeding into this? And two, how do we address the Army Corps of Engineer, which does things like increase the levels of Lake Mendota, which when events happen like this, causes the flooding to be worse? Yeah, so, I mean, let me kind of answer the first one. I think it would be more useful globally, and, and hopefully that incorporates some of the, the second question. You know, climate change is something that if anyone uh, is still trying to pretend there's not a science to it, even though 98% of all the scientists uh, who work in this area have told us there's climate change, it's ridiculous to pretend like it's not an issue. And we're seeing it in many levels, uh, as you just mentioned and, and highlighted in Wisconsin right now. We've got some time. We had like 12 inches of rain last week in a short period wow. of time that's been flooding much of very near my house, 10 minutes from my house, Black Earth and Mazamani. I really got hit cross plains. Uh, Monona and Madison have been hit with the rising lake levels that have the aftermath of the rain. And uh, we're clearly seeing those things across the globe, but especially across our country. And that's one where, you know, President Trump uh, has certainly been going in the wrong direction because the special interests want to continue making money the way they have, and they don't want to have to address this issue. Something Democrats, I think, are pretty unified behind, although I'll admit there are some Democrats, especially in oil-producing states, that aren't. But this is something I think also will be a priority should the majorities change. Yeah. 
And I would say it's now 100% of credible climate scientists or actual climate, climate scientists. Word, right? I mean, you know, I'm sure there's a few Republicans still uh, holding out. Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls here on the Tom Harbin program. Patricia in Portage, Wisconsin, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hey, Tom and Mark. I'm a journalist for the Cap Times, and I write about wildlife. They're about to kill 4,550 bears in the woods, mostly cubs, over packs of dogs next week. And I covered a biomass study of the Earth that shows that 60% of mammals on Earth are now livestock, 36% human, and 4% all the wild mammals left. We need the Endangered Species Act much, much stronger. We need our federal and state agencies funded on something other than killing wildlife in a mass extinction that's destroying our mammals, our large carnivores, the balance of life, leaving us sick with Lyme disease, chronic wasting disease, all the diseases of imbalance that are going to only multiply 4%. All the wild mammals left on Earth is unsustainable and crashing. We need action on this now. As soon as you take power, you need to change these funding mechanisms. Yeah, Patricia, I mean, on the Endangered Species Act, on the Antiquities Act, on a lot of of the parks and natural lands we have, I mean, we need to have a a different approach than we've had under the Republicans in Congress and certainly this president who's made things even worse in all of those areas. So we're down to the final 60-some days before the election. Hopefully, if people care about these issues and other issues, the natural recourse is to take a look at it in November. If you don't like what people are doing who represent you, change the faces of those people. But we need to take on all of those issues, and I'm hopeful that we can. But again, don't forget, there's still going to be someone else in the White House that may not be there, and it may not be quite as easy as we would all like to see it be. Lee in Florida, here on the air with Congressman Pocan. Okay, by the way, Tom, I've held you for years being the epitome of progressive intelligence. So it's the honor to actually finally speak with you. Thank you. But, uh, anyway, I saw the debate, the Democratic debate. Andrew Gilliam was the most authentic person on that stage. So he won because, in my estimate, he's the better candidate. But I did want to make a comment. I did see that commercial where DeSantis was just slobberingly, almost disgracefully, sucking up to Trump with his whole family. Now, that commercial, the first time I ever saw that commercial was last night. So I'm assuming they were smart enough not to play that in South Florida, where it's more or less a Democratic haven. Now, the other thing I want to ask the congressman is Rick Scott, that disgusting governor, is running a commercial, believe it or not, on Bill Nelson's not paying taxes, of all things. So, I mean, I find that to be just almost comical. So my question to you, if you guys do take control, will there be any movement on making Trump expose his tax liabilities or his taxes, period? Hey, Lee, thanks for your call and thanks for your thoughts. I think you're right, first of all, in that commercial. They probably kept it for the most Republican areas because it did make me throw up a little in my mouth when I saw it. It was so over the top and bad. And I think, you know, they don't want everyone to see that because who would want someone who is that close to the president and can't think for themselves? So I think you're right. I think we will do everything in power because we took votes every single week for a while in the beginning to try to force the Republicans to make the president show his taxes, and they didn't. And I think it's a really important transparency thing. It should be nonpartisan. It's not a Democratic or Republican issue. It's whoever's in the White House 
else. We need to know where their financial dealings are, where they're making money, and that's something every other president, Democrat or Republican, has done. So we need to make sure we get that done, and I think that would be a priority. Anita in San Antonio, Texas. You are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, Tom. Hi, Congressman. With all due respect, I know, I mean, I'm sure this Andrew Gilliam is a fine man, but he does not remind me of Barack Obama. Beto O'Rourke reminds me of Barack Obama. <laughs> There's your Texas <laughs> I, I agree. You know, Beto uh, came in my class three sessions ago, and, you know, he is such a quality person. He's exactly the type of people you want to attract to politics. And, you know, yeah. running for the U.S. Senate, I have had many conversations with him. The fact that he is going to every single county in Texas. Well, Ted Cruz wants to be wined and dined by the upper yep. establishment in the Republican Party. This is a guy who's rolling up his sleeves and getting dirty and talking to folks and doing exactly what you want a candidate to do. So I agree. Beto is another great example. I'm just going to tell you, uh, Andrew Gilliam, when I met him, is mm -hmm. such an innovative and smart thinker. We can have more than one well, uh, people across the country that are the future, and I think both of them are falling in that I category. Do agree. But I just think he has, like, that it factor, you know, that kind of – and maybe I'm partial because he is from Texas, but by the same token, I just think he has a, that special factor that Barack Obama had that attracted a lot of people to him. But I, I do want to ask you one question. I know that a lot of people have said these, the Trump voters have economic anxiety, and that's what the majority of them voted for Trump, not because they're racist and misogynist and xenophobes, but because of this economic anxiety. But the problem I have with that and the question I have to ask you – is if that is the case, why don't people of color, the majority of people of color, vote for Trump? They have more economic anxiety, relatively speaking, than a lot of these white Trump voters. Great question. So um, let me give you Wisconsin as an example, because we're a purplish state. Donald Trump narrowly won it by about 23,000 votes. I think now he's got the biggest drop-off of any state he won. His last approval in Wisconsin was 36%. 31% want him to run again. I found that very interesting. And, you know, we've lost a lot of jobs. My hometown, Kenosha, Wisconsin, 14,000 people at its peak used to make cars. No one does today. So he won Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania because of how he talked about trade. Of course, he's operating his trade policies, I think, in a very erratic way that don't necessarily represent that. But on top of it, I would argue much of his support does come from a racist basis. I mean, the rise of the Tea Party was about 50% racism because of uh, Barack Obama getting elected, 50% of hardcore conservatism, and, it, and then it got fueled by Koch brothers and other people's monies. And then I think they created a Frankenstein they didn't quite know how to control. And, you know, here we are today. But I do think that a good chunk of the people who are still with Donald Trump are not because of his policies, because let's face it, this guy is incompetent is about the, the nicest thing I could say about him. Uh, and there's plenty more I, I should. But they're sticking with him because he's proven to be a racist in many of his actions, and I think that is a big chunk of the support he has. So if you're uh, African-American or Latino and you're not doing well economically, you also know this guy will not do well for you in many other areas. So I think it's a compounding of those issues. On the line with us, taking your calls, Ashley in Vancouver, Washington, listening on X-Ray FM. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hey, yes. Um, I actually didn't really have a question. I'm just calling live from a teacher strike here in Vancouver. We're in day two of uh, demanding our fair wages. And I just wanted to give kind of a shout out and kind of get your solidarity because we're out here day two, nothing from our district, on our feet all day, picketing for livable wages. And I just wanted to give that shout out to you guys. 
Ashley, uh, thank you for what you're doing. And, you know, um, it's because of the movement that you're doing around the country that we've seen a lot of the fuel going into these governor's races. We have the opportunity to flip 10 governor's races this November, including my home state of Wisconsin. And a lot of the energy has been around education and the teacher strikes. And, you know, you may have saw Illinois recently, the legislature passed a bill and the Republican governor just vetoed to try to move all teachers starting salaries up to 40000 at some point in the near future, and they still can't get that done. You know, what's more important than education and educating our children? And yet they've been so bad in so many areas in providing the funding. So thank you, uh, one, for being a teacher, and two, thank you for doing what you're doing, fighting for your wages. It's a movement overall. We need to make sure that everyone can lift their wages and take care of their families, and especially if you're taking care of our children, it's so very important. Andy in Heron, Montana, watching us on Free Speech TV. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, Congressman Pocan and Tom. This is another call about financial transparency. The news a week or two ago when they were first talking about the detentions of illegal aliens, I heard them say that they were paying $775 per person per day to the detention facilities. And then in reading Blackwater, I've read that they're paying these mercenaries six to eight hundred dollars or more per day. There seems to be no transparency to let the public what is going on in what seems to be some other sort of crony capitalism. And I'm wondering if there isn't a method for federal control of how much we're paying out of our tax dollars for these privatization of essential needs. Yeah, where's William Proxmire when you need him, Congressman? Yeah. You know, I'll tell you, Andy, a great, great point. You know, we've brought this up. Um, you could stay at every Trump hotel in the country instead of what we're paying these contractors in order to house folks. But we wouldn't have to pay them to house folks at all if we just had a better immigration system or we didn't abuse the system we have like this president has. So for all of the rhetoric from Republicans and from this president about being, you know, good fiscal stewards, hockey, right? Uh, we, we can you know, clearly show that that's not true in so many ways. And that's one great example of what a screwed up policy around immigration has done. It's costing us a lot of money, both in human terms and in tax dollars. And again, all the more reason why we need to have comprehensive immigration reform with a pathway to citizenship for aspiring Americans. Grace in Detroit watching us on YouTube. Question for Congressman Pocan. Quick question is, last year, Alec Koch's group and the Birchers were pushing for a resolution to repeal the 17th Amendment. Have you seen Heidner or hair of that resolution, and how can we stop it? This is direct election of senators. Right. Yeah, I, you know, I haven't heard much, Grace. I think, you know, Alec and those groups work at the state legislative level, so I've, I've been gone from that from six years ago, although I used to belong to Alec just to get all their model legislation, give it to the progressive groups so we knew what they were up to and, and did a lot of work around that in my years in the legislature. I have not seen a whole lot to give you a good status update, although, again, you know, from that and the Constitutional Convention movement they're doing, they're trying to usurp the majority on behalf of the special interests over and over and over again, and we just have to be uh, very vigilant as they move these really bad ideas forward. I'm waiting for them to start talking about repealing the 19th Amendment. <laughs> Reverse women's suffrage. It's bizarre. Congressman, in the final minute we have, your thoughts on, on the coming week, what we should be looking for, what we need to be doing? Sure. So we're back in session in the House. The Senate, I guess, has kind of been in session through August. 
So you've got one last kick at finding your local reps uh, on Labor Day. Hopefully folks are reaching out at different Labor Day celebrations. Hopefully that makes us remember how important labor unions are to all of ourselves, having the benefits we have, 40-hour work week, five-day week, etc., and as we get back into session, I'm sure they're going to try to do a few things to save the November elections. Let's just not let them off the hook. Keep vigilant and uh, keep the eye focused on 60-some days till we get to the election. Yeah. So do you think that this blue wave is actually coming? You know, I do based on all these state legislative flips that we've had. And, mm. uh, you know, people are fired up uh, on our base. Their base is less fired up and this, this non-political voter doesn't like the way the direction of the country is, I think there's some real good opportunities if we all are active in the remaining weeks. Amen. Congressman Mark Pocan, thank you so much, sir. Sure. Thank you. Great That's talking all. with you. You know, in the world of work, one of the most important things is one of the things that people probably think the least about until they have to sit in it, which is their chair. And the X chair is absolutely extraordinary. This is the new high tech. In fact, they've got a brand new version. It's called the X3, the newest version of the X chair. It is comfortable. It is high tech. And yes, I'll say it. It is sexy. This chair is extraordinary and it will dramatically, consequentially improve your concentration and productivity because it's going to help your posture. And, you know, if you're not in pain and your and your blood is working, you know, flowing well, your brain is going to work well. The new X3 is quite simply the most modern, ergonomic, high-tech, comfortable office chair in the world, period. The X3's unique ATR fabric makes it feel like you're literally floating on air. And its patented split-back lumbar technology provides a cradling, customized feel that has to be experienced to believe. You need to see and feel the X3 for yourself. Go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to check out the X3's perfect blend of design and ergonomics. A lot of people, you know, checking these out and going for these chairs. Supplies are limited, so don't wait. Order at xchairtom.com. And if you do it now, you get $100 off. That's xchairtom.com. Or you can call them at 1-844-4X-CHAIR. This chair comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. That's how good it is. Go to xchairtom.com. Right now, use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. XChairTom.com. Now back to the podcast. Welcome back. Let's check in with Talk Media News to find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and loving what you do, Ellen Ratner's new book. And on the line with us is Ellen Ratner herself. And happy birthday yesterday, Ellen. Thank you so much, and I really appreciate that. I'm an old bat, but, you know, that's why we have goats for the old goat, because I'm old. <laughs> well, it started out as your birthday uh, thing, wasn't it, uh, as I recall? It, does, it did, for my 60th birthday, but that was a long time ago, because I'm an old bat. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the club. Okay, <laughs> okay so Thank what's up? Thank you. Well, so what's really interesting, the Florida governor's election and mm. DeSantis versus Andrew Gillum, but what's really interesting is DeSantis got up today on one of the news channels and said, don't let anybody monkey this up. Right. And I mean, it's shocking, actually, that he said that and he's getting a lot of pushback from it. And right. he should. He also said Gillum so, was articulate, uh, you know, which is the old. This is what uh, got Joe Biden, the, the trope that that black people are right. not articulate. And, uh, you know, exactly. it's exactly. Yeah. 
give me a break. Yeah. Okay, so the big news today is that the White House counsel is leaving, supposedly after the Kavanaugh gets nominated to the Supreme Court. His name is Don McGahn, and he actually threatened to leave if Donald Trump fired the special counsel, Mueller. So we don't know whether he was asked to leave or whether he is leaving on his own or whatever. Uh, and we may not know that for a long time, but that's the story. Yeah. Okay. Now, also in Florida's 27th district, Donna Shalala won, and she won the Democratic nomination. She is almost 10 years older than Ross Layton, who is resigning. Ross Layton was the Republican. Now, it's interesting. The Democrats feel that this is a definite pickup seat, that they can win this, and that Donna Shalala, who was HHS secretary and also president of the University of Miami or Florida or something like that, I can't remember, but she is the person that's running. So that's very interesting. Okay, in Arizona, now we have David Garcia, who's running for governor, and if so, he would be the first Latino in, like, 40 years or something that has a public office like governor. Mm -hmm. Now, also, it's very interesting, Martha McSally, who was the year at before, after Shalene at the Air Force Academy, won her seat very easily. She won against Apayo, uh, the sheriff. Right. And what's very interesting about that is that the governor has, he can make an appointment to McCain's seat for almost two years. Now, McSally is running, and she will be running against another member of Congress, Kirsten Cinema. And Kirsten, by the way, is the only openly bisexual member of Congress. Hmm. So the two of them are going to be neck and neck in that race. That is going to be a very, very interesting race. A lot of people are saying McSally is going to win it hands down, but we just don't know about that. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't take anything for granted this year. I would not. Okay, now what's really interesting is Google, who was in trouble with Donald Trump yesterday because he tweeted out something, but they're also in trouble for a reasonable reason, in my view, and that is, is that they might be willing to X out some of what they have in China uh, so that uh, whatever shows up on the Internet in China could be decided on by the government. Yeah, they've been getting serious blowback from their own employees about this project that they've been running for some months now to come up with a Google search that has been appropriately censored by the Chinese government to roll it out in China, because right now it's banned in China. And, it uh, is banned in China. What is interesting is when I was in China a few years ago, I met with a journalism professor, and I said, well, you know, you guys don't have access to the Internet. She said, oh, yes, we do. I said, well, how do you have access? She says, we call it leaping over the Great Wall. <laughs> right, the Great <laughs> Firewall of China. These... Right, exactly. So now there is a group called Good Jobs Nation, and they put out a press release today actually saying that the Trump administration is offshoring American jobs. They put out a report. You can look it up under Good Jobs Nation on the Internet. And that is very, very interesting. Well, Donald Trump himself, I mean, in China, there was a bunch of Make America Great hats and yard signs and American flags for Trump's, apparently for his 2020 campaign, that were being held up in China over a tariff dispute. I mean, it's like he's still making his stuff in China. I know. I mean, can you believe it? I, I, I just, it's, it's staggering. Yeah. How his followers think that he's all about, you know, bringing jobs back to America when he's continuing, the Trump companies are continuing to make stuff in China. It's just, I don't get it. I just don't get it. Now, 
We have been hearing that NAFTA and Canada, that Canada is going to negotiate with NAFTA to renegotiate this. However, the administration, the Trump administration, is only giving them till Friday to either say yay or nay. Mm -hmm. And that is very, very interesting. Again, I have no idea whether they're going to be in or out or how they're going to negotiate. We have not heard any of that, just that the administration is giving them till Friday. Did you ever get to know Krista Freeland? I did not. She was a reporter for, I believe, the Financial Times for years, and she's now, and she wrote a brilliant book about plutocrats in the United States and around the world, you know, about the poisoning of our public discourse by great wealth. And she is now the Canadian finance minister, foreign minister, whatever it is, whatever her job title is. She flew back from Europe to the United States specifically for these conversations. And I have a lot of respect for this woman. Uh, well, you know, I one see smart a lot cookie. of people in Washington and have met them, but I haven't often had conversations with them. Yeah, yeah, but it's, it's I, I have a, you know, she's, she's serious stuff. On the other hand, Trump hates Trudeau the way he hates McCain, you know, uh, better looking, more well thought of, smarter. Uh, and so that, that may have something to do with it, Ellen. And more even minded. Yeah, yeah, less crazy. <laughs> Not at all crazy, in fact. Ellen Ratner with Talk Media News. Thanks, Ellen. Thank you. Kitty in South Florida, listening on Sirius XM. Hey, Kitty, what's on your mind? Hi, I, I wanted to talk about Citizens United really quick, but I also sure. wanted to say, because I'm in Florida, I really like Gillum. I, I think that the reason why she came out of nowhere is because I don't think they took into account young people's vote. I really think that he has uh spoken to a lot of the high schoolers that had to be dealing with some of the things that they were here in Florida. I think they're the ones that pushed him up. I, I think that the um, pollsters right. are just polling the, the traditional Democratic voters, you know, people who have historically been Democratic voters. And there's a whole wave of people coming in who might have registered as independents uh, who are going to be voting Democratic and they're not being picked up in the polls. Back to you, Kitty. Yes. Okay, so um, the whole big deal these days is, um, you know, we don't want foreigners influencing our elections. That's what all the Russia hubbub is about, and I agree. Um, So, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, American companies don't necessarily have to be owned by Americans. So we could have companies here, big companies, that are owned by Saudis, Chinese nationals, uh, Russians, whoever. And And we have many of them. And we also have uh, more, quote, American companies like General Electric that do more than half of their business outside the United States, which raises the question, what is an American company? Sure. And same thing with investors. I know, like, Disney World is owned by, I think, a lot of Saudis. So it's like kind of a Saudi-owned company. Good chunk of the Disney stock, yeah. Yeah. um, but, But the point is, if American companies are now, because of Citizens United, people, then and they could put their money in a major way into our politics by putting their money in PACs or, or candidates, isn't that foreigners in a roundabout way putting the thumb on our scale? It is. Under this, this decision, the Citizens United decision that the Supreme Court did in 2010, that Tokyo Rose, who was the propagandist during World War II, she was, she was a, a Japanese uh, 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 person who was broadcasting in English to American troops saying, oh, you should just, you know, you guys are going to lose. You know, our kamikaze pilots are going to take you out. You should just surrender. The Tokyo Rose would be entitled to fund the elections of American candidates for office. 
And that, and he was right. It is, you know, any country right now and any billionaire anywhere in the world right now can influence U.S. elections and there's nothing to stop it. Uh, there is just some stuff around the edges. So, Kitty, it's a huge problem. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. I mentioned on, on Monday that Louise and I were up in Canada, in Victoria specifically, the capital of British Columbia, uh, which I, I did not know until I was there. Uh, I guess I just always assumed that Vancouver was the capital, but it's on Vancouver Island. But in any case, uh, we were there for, for the weekend for uh, our daughter's wedding, one of our daughter's weddings. And uh, one of the things that I thought was absolutely fascinating that we first noticed in the airport and then, you know, walking around the city, we spent a lot of time uh, Saturday downtown sitting in outdoor cafes, uh, you know, just having a glass of wine and a snack and talking. It was just a wonderful trip and hanging out with our whole family. But one of the things that I really noticed was that I didn't see, I want to say any, uh, there might have been one or two that were the exception, but I didn't see any of the kind of obesity that you see in the United States. And I was scratching my head. I mean, you know, Canadians don't like walk a lot more. And in fact, one of the things we're finding is that exercise doesn't have, you know, it has huge impacts on your health, but it doesn't have that much impact on your weight. It's mostly diet. And so I started looking at the, at the ingredients on foods, you know, get a, a soft drink. It's made with sugar, not high fructose corn syrup. And that reminded me of the, of the news report that I shared with you uh, a week and a half ago that they've now learned that high fructose corn syrup suppresses the body's ability to respond to leptin. Leptin is a hormone that your body produces in response to, to being full, right? When you know that you're full, when you're sated, your body produces this hormone, leptin, that shuts down the hunger response. But it, high fructose corn syrup suppresses that. And so if you have high fructose corn syrup along with a meal or in the hours preceding a meal, you don't know when to stop eating. And th which takes us back to Earl Butts. Earl Butts was the agriculture secretary under Ronald Reagan. And Earl Butts wanted to, his job, his assignment from Reagan was to take the great Midwest, which was very liberal, Right, very progressive at the time. A farm labor party up in Minnesota is legendary, for example. To take that Midwest and turn it Republican. And the way he did this was by massive supports, massive subsidies for the growing, in particular of corn. Corn and soybeans were the two big ones. And it produced a glut in the corn market. And in the 70s, Japanese scientists had figured out how to take corn and convert it into high fructose corn syrup, which is not something that occurs in nature. It's a man-made chemical. It's made out of corn, but it's a chemical. And use it as a sweetener. And so Earl Butts championed that, and we got high fructose corn syrup in the 80s, and toward the late 80s, Coke put it in, and then all the other soft drinks did, and thus began our obesity epidemic. And just going to Canada for four days was just a shock to me of how different Canadians look from Americans and I think it's, this is being done to us, another legacy of the Reagan era. They wanted to pour all this cash on the Midwestern farmers so they'd all love Reagan. And they also wanted to cut the legs out at the knees from under the southern countries, the Central American, South American. Basically, they wanted to destroy this, the sugar industry uh, outside the United States, and they accomplished both. 
and we're left with heart disease and type 2 diabetes. So just when I think I've got things figured out, somebody comes along and says, no, <laughs> I love it. I actually appreciate being corrected. Uh, and I, I, who knows? Uh, Lauren sends me a, send me a note, uh, says, as a Canadian, I was surprised to hear your theory about obesity in Victoria. I haven't been there in years and don't know about their obesity. But here in Alberta, obesity and the consequences are rampant. As for high fructose corn syrup, it's prevalent in Canada as in the U.S., especially since much of our processed food comes from the U.S. Coke has it for sure. Uh, perhaps you were in some bubble of thin people. I'm visiting my son right now in Redmond, Washington. People seem very thin here. Perhaps it has to do with income. People in Victoria are wealthy enough to live in a very expensive city. And here in Redmond, many work in the tech industry and are wealthy. You know, that probably has a lot to do with it. Um, and thank you, Lauren, for that. Maybe it was just, you know, the, the wonderful soft drinks I was trying. But I couldn't, I didn't see any high fructose corn syrup or anything. Um, the, other, the other story that I wanted to share with you is uh, this piece from the Washington Post. Uh, it's from the uh, Wellness Perspective blog uh, today. And the, the, a study was done at King's College in London, in a, looking at a British database. And they start out by, by noting that the two countries in the world that have the highest rates of obesity are the United States and the United Kingdom. And uh, Britain and the United States have similar obesity rates, the highest in the world. In the United States, uh, that would be the developed world, I'm assuming. In the United States, antidepressant use has climbed 65% since 1999. They looked at uh, 300,000 clinical records of adults whose body mass index were measured at least three times for this study. 53,000 adults in the British a database with an average age of 51 and a half had been prescribed antidepressants for the first time during this eight-year study. And what they found was during those eight years, those 53,000 adults who were prescribed antidepressants for the very first time were more likely, far more likely, to gain more than 5% of their body weight than those who were not on the antidepressants. The study team concluded, quote, widespread utilization of antidepressants may be contributing to long-term increased risk of weight gain. I, I just find the whole thing fascinating. I, I have been experimenting on my own body with uh, diet and, and a little bit of exercise. You know, I try to walk a couple miles a day, but I've been pretty much entirely vegan for the last couple of years, vegetarian since I was 16. But uh, when, when we were in Cuba uh, for that week, I was I was uh, eating fish on a regular basis because the meals were, okay, do you want the pork, the beef, or the fish? And that was my choice. And my blood pressure when I came back was like averaging 165 over 110, um, which is like really high for me. That's really high for anybody. And after about, you know, so my doctor, you know, cranked up my blood pressure medication, but after two or three weeks, it went back down again to the point that I had to cut my blood pressure medication uh, down to almost nothing because I'd gone back to being vegan. And then uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I just broke down and it was like there was some really good cheddar cheese and I used to just love cheese. And so, you know, we, I bought a couple of squares of it and I've been eating it for a week and guess what? You know, this morning my blood pressure was 20 points higher than it normally is again. And I'm, you know, I, I, this is not scientific, obviously, it's just me experimenting with my body, but most people don't spend years as essentially vegans and then break that and then see what happens. So, you know, I offer this as a, as a interesting 
experiment that may have nothing to do with you or your body because everybody, you know, we're all unique in some ways. But I'm, I'm just finding this whole thing fascinating. Anyhow, uh, and, and the antidepressant thing I thought was particularly fascinating because the United States and the UK have the worst levels of inequality in the developed world. And we know that there's a direct, almost a one-to-one -one correlation. This is from the study by the, the enormous amount of research done by uh, Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett uh, for their books, uh, Why Inequality Matters and The Spirit Level. And you can find all this on their website. And uh, what they found was that the worse inequality was, the worse a whole variety of social ills were, including divorce rates, teenage pregnancy, sexually transmitted diseases, suicides, homicides, gun violence, uh, crime, uh, and obesity was among those things as well. And, and, and other diseases actually go up with inequality. And you wonder if the antidepressants are causing the weight gain or if they are people who are so stressed by inequality. I mean, the major thing that damages relationships, particularly marriages, is fighting over money. Uh, and, and those fights are much more likely to happen when people don't have decent incomes and don't have, uh, you know, social security systems um, that, uh, you know, is there a relationship there? So anyhow, I just put that out. Uh, we don't need to talk about it. I just wanted to share what I've been thinking about here a lot recently. Brian in uh, Edgewater, Florida, watching us on YouTube. Hey, Brian, what's up? Hey, how you doing, Tom? Great. What's on? What's on your mind? Hey, I just wanted to talk about uh, Andrew Gillum winning in Florida yesterday. Mm -hmm. um, huge, huge victory. He came out of nowhere. Polls down here even had him down about like 10 to 15% even just a week ago. Yeah. Uh, and just wanted to get the word out that everybody in Florida needs to go out and vote for him. He's a fantastic candidate. And his opponent, DeSantis, is he's just a Trump lackey. <laughs> That's the best way I can put it. Yeah. Um, he's, I don't know, if, have you seen his campaign ads that he's run down here? Uh, I've seen DeSantis's ones. The, they've been picked up by the national media where he's building the wall with his little kid and reading him the book about how wonderful Donald Trump is. Uh, I have yeah. not seen any Andrew Gillum ads. He's relatively new to me. Well, he's totally new to me. I, he was not on my radar until yesterday. So Yeah, uh, Bernie, Bernie endorsed him about a month ago, which I think was a huge push, but um, he hasn't run any TV ads or anything. But like mm -hmm. I said, any, any help is needed because it's going to be a tough race the next couple months. Um, yeah. Yeah. He needs, he needs as, much, uh, as uh, much help as he can. Amen. Well said. Uh, Brian, thanks a lot for the call. And uh, I totally agree. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. So uh, as always happens when I talk about diet or weight or anything like that, I start getting feedback from people. Uh, be it on Twitter or email or whatever saying, what are you trying to fat shame me? You don't like fat people. Uh, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not trying to do that. I, you know, you can be any weight you want. And, and I think it's absolutely an abomination the way that we, as a culture, and you see this in our media, you see this in, in uh, I mean, it's just like baked into our culture, uh, basically associate moral failure with being overweight. And uh, it's, uh, it's not a moral failure. And there are, it's an insanely complex thing. And there are all kinds of variables from uh, now we're discovering there's even a, a relationship between healthy or unhealthy gut bacteria and weight. There's, you know, associated, there's obviously genetic uh, pieces to that. Uh, my point that I was talking about was 
uh, when A was the high fructose corn syrup and the use of antidepressants, which I think is consequential, and B, uh, diet itself. And this is the area, this is probably the area where I will uh, diverge from people who uh, uh, want to defend basically the, the standard American diet, uh, the SAD. I have known uh, you know, a number of overweight vegetarians throughout my life, but I've never known an overweight vegan. I really think that eating dead animals, when we're not doing it for survival, is not good for our health and throws us out of balance. And, and eating animal products, in fact, you know, cheese, dairy products, eggs, um, throws us out of balance and, and you know, contributes to obesity and, all, and, and a variety of other health problems. I was talking about my, my own you know, blood pressure. Now, my father had high blood pressure. My grandmother had high blood pressure. It's clearly, you know, it's a genetic thing. It's, it, it, that's for me what you know, being overweight is for somebody else. It's, it's the thing that I have to work with. It's the thing that I have, it's my challenge. And I've discovered that I can get it under control with diet. I just, you know, wanted to share that. I thought it was fascinating. So anyhow, we'll be back tomorrow. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. And you want to check out something, check out the Washington Post today. There's an article by A.J. Angelo titled, How Betsy DeVos Could Trigger Another Financial Meltdown. This is something I, I'll talk about on the air tomorrow. It's something that's really worth sharing with everybody you know and reading yourself. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.